Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. 65 years after the lynching of Emmett Till shocked the nation and spurred the civil rights movement, Congress passes legislation making lynching a federal hate crime. This bill corrects a long-standing omission from federal civil rights law. Historically, nearly 200 anti-lynching bills were filibustered out of existence or just plain ignored. Meanwhile, slanted news coverage of the U.S. presidential race continues to reveal the true face of corporate media as media for the 1%, not the 99. Now what we see more than often are not reporters but pundits who tell you in a very authoritarian way what to think. Bernie Sanders is this. This is what happened. I spoke to so-and-so and this is what they told me. It's not allowing someone else to speak through you to tell their story and for us to feel for them. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. With South Carolina and Super Tuesday up next in the Democratic primaries, all eyes were on this week's debate in Charleston, during which frontrunner Senator Bernie Sanders was attacked for being a Democratic Socialist, for his advocacy for Medicare for All, and for his praise of illiteracy eradication in Cuba. Among the many heated exchanges during which candidates frequently shouted over each other, Sanders sparred with challenger Pete Buttigieg, after Buttigieg characterized Sanders' policy proposals as radical. We're not going to win these critical, critical House and Senate races if people in those races have to explain why the nominee of the Democratic Party is telling people to look at the bright side of the Castro regime. Thank We've you. got to be a lot smarter about this right. and Sen look to Senator the future. Sanders, right. okay. Senator Sanders, your response. Uh, let us be clear. Do we think health care for all, Pete, is some kind of radical communist idea. Do Wait, we think this raising talk about the minimum no, wage to I'm a living to wage? To the Do we think building really the millions of this units really of affordable housing no, if, if that we need? That Do we think question, raising taxes on billionaires is a radical let's, idea? Let's talk about what's radical about that plan. Senator, is a radical Senator, idea. The things you just named Do we think immigration reform? The truth is, that the American people support my agenda that is why I am beating Trump in virtually every poll. In recent polls, former Vice President Joe Biden continues to hold a slim lead over Sanders in South Carolina, and Sanders holds a lead in several Super Tuesday states, including Massachusetts, the home state of candidate Senator Elizabeth Warren. Other highlights from the debate included billionaire Mike Bloomberg almost saying that he quote-unquote bought politicians in the 2018 elections, and Pete Buttigieg declaring that he stands with the people of Idlib, Syria, meaning, of course, that he stands with al-Qaeda as the Syrian army attempts to finally rid the country of U.S. and U.K.-backed religious extremists. Since 2015, these jihadists, responsible for carrying on the war that has killed a half million Syrians and destroyed ancient cities and public infrastructure, 
not on the debate stage and continuing to speak out against U.S. regime change wars is Representative Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii, who campaigned in the Super Tuesday state of Virginia this week. On Tuesday in Virginia Beach, she answered a question about the outsized interest of money, both in the Democratic race and in Washington. There's two billionaires who are running on the Democratic ticket, and they're getting a lot of attention for the endless amount of money that they're able to spend to run TV ads and do all of the things. But there's no attention and focus, not surprisingly, being paid to the massive corporate media billionaires who are themselves directly influencing and deciding which candidates they want voters to hear from or about and what they want voters to hear. Uh, this, is, this is a really big issue On Capitol Hill on Wednesday, the House overwhelmingly passed the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act, which makes lynching a federal hate crime. The Senate passed a similar bill by unanimous consent. Pre-vote comments from lawmakers were broken into one-minute segments, leading to representatives being cut off as they attempted to speak in a heartfelt manner about the impact of these acts of murder and terrorism perpetrated against African-Americans. The legislation is named for the 14-year-old boy who was tortured and murdered in 1955 in Mississippi after he was accused of whistling at a white woman at a grocery store. This is Representative Karen Bass of California speaking before the House vote. Lynchings were advertised in newspapers as recreational events that families would attend They would have picnics while they watched brutal murders take place. I want to leave you with this. A 1930 editorial in Raleigh News and Observer noted the elation of the audience witnessing a lynching as follows. Men joked loudly at the sight of the bleeding body. Girls giggled as the flies fed on the blood that dripped from the Negro's nose. Lynchings were brutal, violent, and savage public spectacles. As I said, they were advertised in newspapers and postcards were sold. Souvenirs were made from victims' remains. More voices from the debate before the vote on the Emmett Till Anti-Litching Act later in the show. In climate news, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York read the 14 pages of her proposal for a Green New Deal into the House record. UN Human Rights Commissioner Michelle Bachelet said in Switzerland that the environmental policies of the Trump administration, including allowing untreated pollutants to be dumped into U.S. waterways, amount to violations of human rights. And on Monday, protesters rallied outside the Supreme Court, where oral arguments began in a case United States Forest Service versus Cow Pasture River Preservation Association which will determine whether a pipeline can cross the Appalachian Trail. Here is Chastity Hunt of the Lumbee Nation in North Carolina rallying outside the courthouse. No pipeline needs to come through Virginia, West Virginia, or North Carolina, or South Carolina for that matter. We don't need it. It's not a benefit to anyone but the greedy suckers in charge. So take that advice. Listen to what I say today, and please raise your voices. Make sure you let everybody know, your friends, and tell your family, this does not need to happen. 
And finally, in culture and media, peace and press freedom advocates have been rallying both here in D.C. and in London in support of Julian Assange, the founder of WikiLeaks, who is on trial in London, facing possible extradition to the United States for leaking evidence of U.S. war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. Rally organizer Andrew Smith spoke to reporters at Monday's protest at the White House. The struggle for Julian is literally interconnected between all other activists because if we can't freely share information to truly know what's happening, none of us can effectively organize to fight it. The Smithsonian Institute announced that it has released 2.8 million images from copyright restrictions on its website, Smithsonian Open Access. Visitors to the website can download and use the files in whatever way they wish without requesting express permission from the organization. The goal is to release more than 3 million images to open access by the end of the year, according to the Smithsonian. And just as that historic Emmett Till legislation was passed this week, the award-winning documentary Always in Season premiered on PBS. It follows the tragedy of African-American teenager Lennon Lacey, who in August 2014 was found hanging from a swing set in Bladenboro, North Carolina. His suspicious death was ruled a suicide by law enforcement, but Lennon's mother, Claudia, her family, and many others believe Lennon was lynched. The film chronicles Claudia's quest to learn the truth and takes a closer look at the lingering impact of more than a century of lynching African Americans and connects the dots to show us America's history of lynching may not be history at all. Here is the trailer for Always in Season. If you knew in your heart and in your mind that someone took your child's life, how far would you go to get to the truth? I think they hung him up to make it look like a suicide. It looked like a back-in-the-day lynching. His body will be hung in the courthouse square for all to see. All white folks are invited to the party. Lynching was a message crime. They happened in places where the body would be seen. And it's the public nature of lynching that really condemns the white community because the idea that people didn't know, they did know. As I started researching black males committing suicide in public over the last few years, I became quite concerned that there may be a bigger surreptitious movement at play here. The caption, last night picked before the game. That does not sound like a person that was planning on killing himself. Any injustice affects everybody that's around it. So we don't want anything in the dark. Bring it to the light. That was the trailer for Always in Season, premiering this week on PBS. And those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. And this is the fourth show of the month, so it's time for our deep dive into culture and media. And joining me is John Jeter, former foreign correspondent for the Washington Post and author of Flat Broke in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleeced Working People. He joins us from Limon, Costa Rica. Welcome back to the show, John. Thank you for having me, Esther. Well, you know, I have given up on the very slanted and biased coverage from corporate media. But I think this month, media, particularly MSNBC, just went completely off the rails. And this is with Chris Matthews comparing the presidential campaign of Bernie Sanders to a left-wing movement that could have him executed in Central Park. And then comparing the Sanders Nevada victory to the Nazis defeating France. So, given all that, what was your reaction from where you are? The same as yours. I think it reminded me of the late Black Panther, Geronimo G. Jagger Pratt, who used to always say, I'm told, that, you know, the the elites are not going to give back this country without a fight. You're going to have to fight them for this country. And it seems that this Bernie Sanders has them shook. They're really afraid of the fire next time, even though obviously Bernie Sanders is not Fidel Castro and he's not, you know, certainly not Hitler, which is really offensive, being that he's a, a man of a, whose family was killed in the Holocaust. But they're panicked. They're clearly panicked. And Chris Matthews, perhaps more than any, and, you know, I mean, really, Chris Matthews, if you really think about him, he's really such a farcical figure. Wasn't it Chris Matthews who talked about how basically he had a crush on Barack Obama? Do you remember in the... In the first election, about he talked about how Barack Obama made him feel almost woozy, I think, were his, were his words, you know? And, oh, my God, I don't remember that. <laughs> yeah, you know, so, I mean, he's really a farcical character, even though, you know, frankly, he's quite dangerous in these sort of stereotypes and sort of demagogic language that he uses. He's very dangerous, but, but in an amusing way, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to play a little clip of Chris Matthews talking about his skepticism of Bernie Sanders and the label of socialism. I, I have my own views of the word socialist, and I'll be glad to tell them, share them with you in private. And they go back to uh, the early 1950s. I have an attitude about them. I remember the Cold War. I have an attitude towards Castro. I believe if Castro and the, and the, and the Reds had won the Cold War, there would have been executions in Central Park, and I might have been one of the ones getting executed. And certain other people would be there cheering, okay? So I have a problem with people who took the other side. I don't know who Bernie Bernie supports over these years. I don't know what he means by social. One week it's Denmark. We're going to be like Denmark. Okay, that's harmless. So, so that's Chris Matthews talking about Sanders. The other thing that happened, uh, Bernie Sanders was uh, interviewed for 60 Minutes, I think by Anderson Cooper, the scion of the Vanderbilt family. And I think he happened to mention giving some kind of credit to the advances in literacy made by the Cuban people. Young people went out into the countryside and, you know, basically taught elders to read and basically eliminated illiteracy, you know, in this impoverished, embargoed country under the boot of U.S. imperialism. Fidel Castro did this. So, so Bernie Sanders basically gives credit to their their literacy campaign. And this is everything that they've been talking about this week. And it spilled into the Nevada debate. And let's hear a clip from that where, you know, Bernie Sanders basically, you know, is just fed up with 
uh, the red baiting. Do we think health care for all, Pete, is some kind of radical communist idea? Do Wait, we Ross, think raising talk about the minimum no, wage to I'm a living to wage? To the question, Do we think building really the millions of units really of affordable housing no, if, if that we need? That Do we think question, raising taxes on billionaires is a radical let's idea? Let's talk about what's radical about that plan. Is a radical idea. The things you just named are things that you just named are the things that the American people support by agenda. That is why I am beating Trump in virtually every poll. So it was just a full-on attack. But anyway, I just thought that the questions based on looking at the Cuban Revolution really showed me how... I used to say I'm in my left bubble, but I realized that no, I mean, if you go to Cuba, you go to, you travel the world like you are, you realize, no, I'm in, I'm with the rest of the people. These media people, they're in the bubble. (laughs) So, so that they don't understand that people like Fidel Castro were heroes in their country and they freed their people from the legacy of slavery and colonialism, just like Patrice Lumumba or Ho Chi Minh. These people are vilified here in the United States and in Europe because they got themselves and their people from underneath the boot of colonialism and white supremacy. So to me, it was just another time of like living in the twilight zone, listening to these people this week. I heard that interview as well with Bernie Sanders and Anderson Cooper, and it struck me how or reminded me, I guess, how myopic the American media is and how as you say, ensconced in this bubble we are. And if I can just tell a very quick story, I think it really sort of illustrates just how sort of walled off the United States is from the rest of the world. I moved to South Africa in 1999 for the Washington Post uh, to be their, their foreign correspondent there. And it was right before the second Democratic election. So Nelson Mandela was kind of walking off the world stage, as it were, handing over power and all these heads of state were on their way to Johannesburg, Pretoria, South Africa. And, of course, you know, Fidel Castro is famously, or was famously, uh, a very close friend of Nelson Mandela's. Anyway, a radio station played this trick on a hotel, a big, really sort of fancy hotel in South Africa. And they pretended to be Fidel Castro's sort of advanced team. And they were asking if his room was ready, pretending that he was, you know, he had planned to stay there. And it began as this sort of joke, but it ended sort of, it was almost, uh, it was poignant for me as an American who, of course, I'm familiar with Fidel Castro. My father was a great fan of Fidel Castro. My father, a uh, black auto worker who really admired Fidel Castro and, and Fidel Castro's support of African people and African causes. Uh, so I was familiar with Fidel Castro, and I certainly knew that I admired him, the black the United States admired him. But you should have heard the almost a sense of shame in these hotel workers who didn't have the reservation for Fidel Castro. And they were really, really very apologetic about it, almost to the point of being tearful, almost sort of like that, you know, that you hear about the these Japanese, uh, the sense of shame when you've done something wrong and you uh, have to commit Harry Carey, you know, to sort of, you know, redeem yourself. You almost felt that kind of suffering in these hotel workers who didn't have Fidel Castro's hotel reservation. And it led me to understand, it was part of this process by which I understood how much Fidel Castro means to the rest of the world precisely because of these things which Bernie Sanders was praising. Literacy, this sort of humanitarian healthcare provider for the world, right? And the rest of the world has this sort of 
real admiration, almost worshipful admiration. And I, I, to this day, I will tell you, I think that in the time that I was in South Africa, when I was in Africa, uh, which would have been right about the time that Julius Nairi, the, the late, uh, liberation hero of Tanzania, passed, that if you had taken a poll of all Africans or all sub-Saharan Africans, if that was possible, and you had asked them who played the most important role in the African liberation struggle, what living person played the most important role in the African liberation struggle, this would have been, you know, maybe 2003, 2004, 2005. I swear to you, I believe, I fully believe that Fidel Castro would have finished number two to Nelson Mandela at that time. Uh, possibly number three behind Robert Mugabe, who still had some semblance of a reputation. But he's tremendously popular in the rest of the world. And the United States, he's seen as this sort of synonym for villainy. And it's just, it just really underscores how detached from reality that Americans are. But like you're talking about your dad and even yourself, I think that that's the U.S. corporate media that has that attitude that yeah but it's infectious i think most americans you know we speak in the shorthand now it's not it's not really it's like kwame Ture said uh, stokely carmichael americans don't really think anymore they just respond to stimuli so you know you hear about castro oh he's a murderer well he was but who did he murder let's look at who he murdered you know he's a communist well yeah but you know he's fully supported by uh the cuban people you know, and by many people in the, throughout the world. So this is shorthand, this sort of sloganeering. We don't really talk about ideas and about, we don't talk about di- dialectical materialism, right? Like they talk about this in the rest of the world, These how history is made by these two competing forces, right? These two opposing forces that create history. And we don't talk about the here. There's just one force, capitalism, America, God, country, the white settler. I mean, that's really it, right? We don't talk about those other people and their ideas and their ambitions and what they want. We just, it's not discussed. Well, I just know that most of the world is listening in, then we must sound like truly ignorant people to be ignorant about the history of the struggles of the people of the world to free ourselves from colonialism and slavery. And that is what Fidel Castro was about. That's who he was. And so we can the mass media here can demonize him if they want to, but I just think that we just look ignorant to the rest of the world. I would argue it's even worse than that, Esther, because, you know, the the rest of the world is so much farther ahead of us in this discussion. So it's not just that we're ignorant and we sound ignorant, right, but that we're not even able to participate in this conversation that's going on all around the globe. Fidel Castro was not perfect, right? We can have any number of debates about Fidel Castro, his leadership, his rise to power, communism in Cuba, we can, and we have the same conversation about another one of my heroes, Hugo Chavez, but because we sort of automatically sort of reflexively respond to Fidel Castro, bad, Hugo Chavez, bad, socialism, communism, bad. Uh, we can't even participate in this conversation that's going on across the world, right? It's like we're children, right? And the rest of the world are adults, even though we have all the money, or at least you know, our government does and our elites do, we're not able to participate in this conversation going on all around the world. Wow. You just gave me this image in my head of like, kind of like a, a little spoiled child with like carrying missiles around, you know, you know, you know, we're we're like a petulant child, but we have like nuclear missiles in our pockets, you know, uh, and that's kind of where we are right now. And you, you wonder, that's clearly unsustainable. But, you know, when you listen, I was in Argentina when the uh, uh, Iraq war started. And 
just the newspapers, the depiction of the war in the newspapers, the pictures which were grisly but, but not gratuitous. They were trying to tell you about what's really going on. And the people's interpretation, Argentine, the country that is, by the way, 97% white, right? And I think it's probably more than that, but that's the official number. And there's a different conversation about the war going on, right. a different understanding. And, and it's just, and, and this is a failure of all our liberal institutions, but none more so than the American media. I'm in conversation with John Jeter, former foreign correspondent for the Washington Post and author of Flat Broke in the Free Market. This is on the ground. We're going to take a brief break and we'll be right back. The name of this tune is Mississippi Goddamn. And I mean every word of it. Alabama's got me so upset Tennessee made me lose my rest And everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn Alabama's got me so upset Tennessee made me lose my rest And everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn Can't you see it? Can't you feel it? It's all in the air I can't stand the pressure much longer Somebody say a prayer Alabama's got me so upset Tennessee made me lose my rest And everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn This is a show tune, but the show hasn't been written for it yet Hound dogs on my trail School children sitting in jail Black cat cross my path I think every day's gonna be my last Lord have mercy on this land of mine We all gonna get it in due time I don't belong here, I don't belong there I've even stopped believing in Don't tell me, I'll tell you Me and my people just about do I've been there so I know You keep on saying, go slow Well that's just the trouble Washing the windows thought I was kidding Picket lines, school boycotts They try to say it's a communist plot All I want is equality For my sister, my brother, my people and me (laughs) 
Yes, you lied to me all these years. You told me to wash and clean my ears and talk real fine just like a lady. And you'd stop calling me Sister Sadie. Oh, but this whole country is full of lies. You all gonna die and die like flies. I don't trust you anymore. You keep on saying, go slow. Go slow. Well, that's just the trouble. Desegregation. Mass participation. Unification. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam, and I'm in conversation with John Jeter, former foreign correspondent for the Washington Post and author of Flat Broke in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleeced Working People, and he's joining me from Limon, Costa Rica. And before the break, John, we were talking about just crazy coverage um, from corporate media like MSNBC mainly of the Bernie Sanders campaign. And so I want to kind of tie that into a pretty devastating piece you wrote recently called Tell a Story, Shame the Devil, about, I guess, your being kind of fed up with how journalism has devolved from what it used to be. Why don't you tell us about it? Yeah, I wrote a piece recently, uh, really it's about I guess it's sort of about being an old journalist and the absence of storytelling from journalism that, you know, there are lots of deficits. There's, you know, there's just, there's not much diversity. There's not many different perspectives. As clearly as a corporate media that's governed by the viewpoints of the elites and the people who are uh, sort of in their serve in the service of the corporate elites. Uh, but I think one of the fundamental deficits is the lack of storytelling because storytelling, which is how you and I sort of like, uh, came up as journalists and learning storytelling. How do you tell stories? How do you, as we used to always say at the Post, storify this reportage that we've done? And that's missing almost totally, almost totally from uh, journalism today. And the reason that's important is because people need story, even when they don't realize it. It really it connects us not just to each other, right? Like your story connects me to you in a way that just a sort of straight bio or resume never could. But it also connects us uh, to the truth, right? And so the example I used was the sort of famous, in journalism circles anyway, the Mark Danner piece in uh, The New Yorker from 1993, where he wrote about the massacre of nearly a thousand uh, Salvadoran peasants during the Cold War by the U.S. government-supported government troops in, in El Salvador. And the government had, uh, the U.S. government and the El Salvadoran government had, uh, Salvadoran government had long 
denied that this had happened, said it was just a skirmish between rebel troops and government troops, and that wasn't what happened. And Mark Denner told this masterful piece, uh, really kind of an icon of, of, of journalism, where he interviewed survivors and a forensic team that was there, and he spoke to them and they told their story. Through, through Mark Denner, they told their story. And now, you know, that's a very humble thing. It's the reporter being a platform for someone else to tell their story. And now what we see more than often are, are not reporters, but pundits who tell you in a very authoritarian way what to think. Bernie Sanders is this. This is what happened. I spoke to so-and-so and this is what they told me. It's not allowing someone else to speak through you to tell their story and for us to feel for them. And so if I can give you just one other example, which I didn't mention in the piece, but I was thinking about this recently. But before you, before you go to the other example, I wanted to remind people that this massacre at, is it El Mozote? El Mozote, yeah. Uh, this is the massacre that Ilhan Omar mentioned during the hearing oh, right. when Elliot right. Abrams right. was, uh, was he being confirmed? <laughs> yeah, and this is the massacre that she brought up. And so that story whether she read that particular article or not, that story allowed those those voices to be heard, that massacre That's of those right. thousand people to be known. Yeah. And probably people would not have known if it wasn't for that story. No, no, we, we just, we don't tell stories like that. American journalism has never been perfect, but at least there was, you know, during our time. Uh, <laughs> Come on, not that old. Like, oh, right. But you know, that was our objective, at least, right? As journalists, we wanted to tell stories. We didn't want to go out and tell people. We weren't bloggers. We didn't want to tell people, you know, do this or think this. or That wasn't what we wanted to do. We wanted to let other people tell their stories through us, right? Uh, and that's what, that's what journalism should be at its best because it connects us, you know? And we don't have that, not in any uh, real way anymore. You see some sporadic examples of it, but it just doesn't really exist anymore. Your description of your story probably segues perfectly into the last, our last topic for today. And that is a documentary that people can see on PBS now. And it's called always in season. Gerald Horn, our contributor for world news told us about it last week when he saw it at the Pan African film festival in Los Angeles. The director is Jacqueline Olive, and it's really talking, uh, focusing in on that case uh, from 2014 when 17-year-old Lennon Lacey was found hanging from a swing set in rural North Carolina. I don't know if you remember that case. And it uses that case to talk about whether this is indeed a suicide or a lynching and whether uh, we have unreported instances of lynching, you know, in today's world that are being written off as suicides. And then goes back and talks about the history of lynchings in the United States, lynchings of black people, including black women, uh, which is often not talked about. I'm going to play a clip from Always in Season. And this one is Lennon Lacey's mom. Lennon would have never wanted me to not know what happened to him. You know, he would want me to have some type of closure because we were very close. So I said, there's nothing too insignificant that you can't tell me. Nothing too personal. I know you. I had you. I know everything about your body, everything about you. Give us, Lord, our daily bread. Amen. For them to say what they did as far as 
he had taken his own life. I, I couldn't see that. He had too much to live for. Too much. And I just want justice and closure. Last time I talked to them was the day that we buried my uncle. So we all came back here. After the funeral, Leonard was dressed down. He had on his dark blue sweatpants, a sports jersey with blading on the front of it, and uh, his tennis shoes stuck out because they were that neon green. But that's the color he wanted because he had a hat that it matched too because he bought the whole outfit. The hat, the pants, and the shirt, and the shoes matched. I said, well, I'm going to go ahead to bed because I'm tired and don't feel too good, so... Lennon was like, I gotta finish hanging out my things for a football game tomorrow. So he kissed me on the forehead. I said, don't forget to take that stuff off the line. And I went to bed. And that was the last time I talked to Lennon. So that's Lennon Lacey's mom speaking in the movie Always in Season. And uh, people can check their local listings because uh, it is playing uh, on independent lens on on PBS um, it won a special jewelry prize at Sundance and uh, I think it was a prize for like um, m- like moral urgency it was a you know a prize that uh, was definitely fitting for for the content of the film and so I guess that's a that's a uh, I, I, I don't know if you want to have if you have any reaction to that well I, I do actually and I'll try to be brief you know one of the things that I have been sort of a student of over the last couple of years is this idea that's gaining some currency particularly since sort of the Black Lives Matter began a few years ago or I guess now what six years ago uh, this idea that's called Afro-pessimism which is a terrible name but the idea is that ever since its inception the United States has been organized you know, largely around violence against black people and that we continue, this country continues to sort of violate black people, to degrade the black body in large part because it reproduces the idea of master and slave. In other words, that as the country changes, and we see this in the riots of, of 1919, the Red Summer of 1919, where there were these racial riots that sprang up around the country, when when basically the country was industrializing right after World War One, and where it's sort of industrializing very quickly, and people are unsure of their role in society, and so. The violence played a role in terms of assuring people, white people, that they were the master and that black people who they could treat like slaves were were the slaves, right? So it says, I'm the master, you're the slave. Dr. Frank Wilderson, who's an academic out of the University of California, Irvine, is known as the pioneer of this idea, but it's gaining currency among young people, especially young black people. And the more I sort of study it, the more I see that there is some real truth in that, that there is a almost libidinal need by many, not all, obviously, by many white people. Uh, you know, the studies show that white people, many white people grow, they gain confidence when they hear about events like this, about black death, black murder, black lynchings. They grow in confidence. Well, the only thing they could sort of explain that is that uh, that reassures them. It offers them some sort of emotional sucker that they're place in society is assured and that's what this piece that's what it reminds me of is this idea of afro-pessimism i know you've been a critic of afro-pessimism i I was initially because i didn't understand it frankly 
But the more, and I actually interviewed Dr. Wilderson about a year and a half ago, I say, and he really explained it to me in a way that, you know, that really made me understand. And I, I, I actually, I'm quite a fan of the idea now. I do believe, and not, not that it offers a solution for how to organize and sort of how it informs a social movement. It doesn't do that, but it does describe sort of what we're up against. I don't think it's true in an absolute sense, but I do think that historically there has been that sort of uh, emotional attraction to black pain. And it's, it's been enough to sustain, you know, lynching violence as we've seen over the last few years, videotape violence against black people. Well, we certainly can um, pick up that topic again because, I, you know, we haven't seen a lot of video of police shootings, poli- you know, shoot, you know, murders by the police of black people. They haven't, you know, been surfacing a lot lately, but but they are there, and there were some people, there were many of us who just couldn't see them anymore. He couldn't watch them yeah. anymore. Yeah, you know? one of them, yeah. Right, right. Or even the, the little girl who was arrested. Oh, that's the, awful. The I, little, can't, I can't watch that. I the just, little six-year-old girl yeah, who was arrested yeah. and, and zip-tied this week uh, by the police and, you know, for you know, acting out in school, you know. Right, So right. No, um, horrible. Yeah. yeah. On that note, I, I've totally run out of time. I've been speaking with John Jeter, a former foreign correspondent for the Washington Post and author of Flat Broke in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleece Working People. He joined me from Limon, Costa Rica. And thank you so much for joining me again, John. Thank you, Esther. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. On Capitol Hill on Wednesday, the House overwhelmingly passed the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act, which makes lynching a federal hate crime. The Senate passed a similar bill by unanimous consent. Pre-vote comments from lawmakers were broken up into one-minute segments, leading to representatives being cut off as they attempted to speak in a heartfelt manner about the impact of these acts of murder and terrorism perpetrated against African Americans. The legislation is named for the 14-year-old African American boy who was tortured and murdered in 1955 in Mississippi after he was accused of whistling at a white woman at a grocery store. This is Representative Karen Bass of California speaking before the House vote followed by Representative Benny Thompson of Mississippi and Representative Danny Davis of Illinois. Madam Speaker, I rise in support of H.R. 35. Today, the House will pass the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act and designate lynching as a hate crime under federal law. But we must admit, it is a travesty that it has taken 100 and 20 years for the U.S. government to address this crime. In fact, the first bill to outlaw lynching was introduced in 1900. Make no mistake, lynching is terrorism. It's terrorism directed at African Americans. 
lynching was commonly used for 256 years during the period of enslavement and for almost 100 years after slavery, well into the 1950s. And frankly, even today, periodically, you will hear news stories of nooses being left on college campuses, in work locker rooms, to threaten and terrorize African Americans. A vicious reminder that the past is never that far away, and in fact, the last known victim of lynching was just 25 years ago, and for the first time in history, the perpetrator was actually convicted and executed. We often like to only talk about the glorious parts of our history, and it's difficult for us to hear some of the ugly parts. But it is important that we do hear and understand our history in full. This form of terrorism was used to kill black people and terrorize and terrify those who were not murdered into understanding they were not considered as humans. Today in Montgomery, Alabama, there is the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, and I hope that everyone has an opportunity to see that because it is the only place in our country that actually documents in every state where known lynchings were taken place and in every county. Lynchings were advertised in newspapers as recreational events that families would attend. They would have picnics while they watched brutal murders take place. I want to leave you with this. A 1930 editorial in Raleigh News and Observer noted the elation of the audience witnessing a lynching as follows. I need more time. I yield the gentlelady another minute. Men joked loudly at the sight of the bleeding body. Girls giggled as the flies fed on the blood that dripped from the Negro's nose. Lynchings were brutal, violent, and savage public spectacles. As I said, they were advertised in newspapers and postcards were sold. Souvenirs were made from victims' remains. Today I rise in support of H.R. 35, Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act, a bill that will specify lynching as a hate crime. This bill corrects a long-standing omission from federal civil rights law. Historically, nearly 200 anti-lynching bills were filibustered out of existence or just plain ignored. Lynchings were violent and public acts of torture used nearly a century to enforce uh, racial segregation. This legislation is long overdue. Lynchings were wrong, immoral, and inhumane. This bill is named in the honor of Emmett Till, a 14-year-old African-American youth from Chicago who was lynched in my district in 1955 while visiting an uncle in Mississippi. There is a memorial dedicated to Mr. Till in my district. Unfortunately, it is the only memorial in America that has to be bulletproof. In the years past, the signs have been stolen, thrown in the river, replaced, shot, replaced again, shot again, defaced with acid, and have had KKK spray painted on them. The signs were placed near the spot where Teal's body was pulled from the Tallahatchie River in 1955. The 14-year-old was tortured and killed by two white men after false accusations that he flirted with a white woman. His death became an important catalyst in the civil rights movement. 
With the passage of this bill, we hope to heal the past and present racial injustice. Our country is in need of reconciliation. Lynching claims the lives of an immeasurable number of African Americans, yet the perpetrators were never held accountable. Conversely, official inaction has left lasting scars on our communities. Today, I represent Mississippi's 2nd Congressional District, which includes the area where Emmett Till was lynched. His murderers were never held accountable for what they did. It's kind of emotional for me because I knew uh, this young man's mother uh, before she died. Very wonderful lady, suffered an unfortunate tragedy uh, at the lives of some dastardly individuals. But more importantly, we are a better country than what that deed dictates. So I support Congressman Rush's bill. Uh, it's a bill that is long overdue. But as important, uh, we have to commit ourselves to making this, com- this country a better country. And in the little town of Glendora, where the, the fan that was attached to young Emmett's body that sank in the Tallahatchie River, uh, there's a little museum dedicated not only to Mr. Uh, Teal, but to the atrocities that have occurred in my district over time. And so I compliment those individuals for putting the, the museum together, but also dedicating themselves to letting the world know what happened, but also recommitting ourselves to try not to let it happen again. Uh, so we must pass this legislation, Madam Speaker. We must pass it to correct the inactions of those before us. The inaction of others does not relieve one of the obligation to do what is right. Let me thank the gentleman for yielding, and of course I come to join with all of those who have extolled the virtues of this bill, urge its passage, and I also reflect on the fact that I grew up in the state of Arkansas, and my father, who was a tremendous historian, could often point to places and show us sites and trees where lynchings were supposed to have taken place. And the fact that we are now saying that any lynching activity should be a federal crime is one that I concur with. And I want to thank the Reverend Jesse Jackson, because that's really who called me one day and said, uh, you know, we need to do something about this. So I was pleased to interact with Congressman Rush and say, let's do something about this. And so I want to thank Congressman Rush for taking the leadership on this bill. I want to thank the Judiciary Committee passing it. Thank you, and I yield back the balance of my time. And Representative Danny Davis will have the last word on today's show. And that will do it for this episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. You can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On the Ground Show. And we are on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On the Ground. The music we played this hour included Ulali, 
Mother Tribute to Native Women, and Nina Simone, Mississippi Goddamn. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. Peace.